Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Mark Safe, tales of your very favorite and most beloved man-made disasters. On Mark Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Mark Safe. Hi, I'm back. Melanie, how are you doing? Um, I'm still vertical. Good. How's Cody? He's doing good. Um, I think it was good that I took last week off. You know, it. He's he kind of throws himself into work when yeah shit happens, but you never know. Like if he needs me, I want to be there. And, yeah, uh, recording is very distracting. Yeah, <laughs> very time consuming. Very fun, but if you need to be super available and present, that's a good time to sit it out. Yeah. So he was really grateful, and he really loved your message that you put. So. It was really sweet. So thank I'm you glad. for that. I want I, I wanted it to be a little more polished, but I got nervous and my kid wouldn't stop talking. So you got what you got. <laughs> I was mentally tapped out. It was just sad, you know, because the week before Cody, because um, we found out she had cancer. Um, she was 87. So, you know, she's lived a, a, a pretty full life. But the week before we found out that she had um, cancer. So we kind of knew it was coming. So we. We flew him out um, and he met with his sisters so and his mom. So they all got to like really just be, she had all her facilities. So they got to be in the moment and it's been a long time since they've all been together. And, you know, so I feel yeah. like if I were to go out, that's the way I would want to go out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. Um, she's, she's super sweet. She had them go through, um, all her, her stuff, which of course made him completely uncomfortable. You know, do you have a will? Um, yes, I do. Which, you know, is more of a making sure that my kid ends up in the right place if something happens. Right. Kind of thing. But I do. I need to get you. No, I don't, but <gasps> I just saw your penguin shirt because as soon as you were talking about things, I remembered that there was something that I hadn't had a chance to read because my kid had her first play this week and I've been a wall. And then I just remembered that you said that you got a shirt from Cody's grandmother and I just went and I saw it and oh my God. Yes. So she has, it's like a Christmas sweater and it's blue, but around the collar, it has all these little penguins. And it's, like, super fitting because I love penguins. And they're wearing scarves, <laughs> but, like, the little fray on the scarf, like, is sticking out. And I've just, I've never been so happy to, like, receive. It was cool that I was thought of, but, like, yeah, they really, you know, she, like, really thought out, like, what I got her so she had decided before yeah they all went through it together and you know I think they kind of went through the stuff and we're talking with her through it and stuff so but yeah so I got her penguin shirt I got her complete Avon set of Christmas earrings so I'm super stoked on that and then I actually got um some really really um like gorgeous like irreplaceable um like handmade jewelry and stuff from wow so 
But yeah, I mean, it's sad and it sucks. It is sad, but thank God for a life well lived. Yeah. You know, if you're going to, if there's going to be a good death, that sounds like it. Yeah. So she was definitely at peace. You know, she had told us she was ready. (laughs) You know, she just, she was happy with the life she lived. And I, I feel like, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to be sad about that for someone like yeah, because I think I know. if I were to go, I mean, it's sad for the people, but that that's kind of beautiful, actually. Yeah, and she just kept telling everyone like, like she was perfectly happy with everything that she's done and put out, and I mean, I don't, yeah. I couldn't say that, but I hope one day I can be yeah. like, hey, I'm leaving this earth. You know, I tried to help as many people as I possibly could. You know, I did my best. Like, I don't know. Man, this is, that's, that's heavy. And I, I get very stuck about mortality. And I've been kind of in my head about it this week because it's my coma anniversary at the end of the month. Um, and I get really just kind of stuck and glitched about mortality and in my head. And I really kind of can't handle it at all. Right. And I always just kind of wonder if that is a possible outcome yeah (laughs) and it's 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 inspirational in a weird way that it apparently was for her yeah I mean I don't I've never met anybody that's been like okay I'm I'm ready to bounce you know what I mean that's like but I mean I don't know that I've known that many people who would have had the opportunity to be like that convey that or feel that or anything hmm it's strange so, yeah, yeah, we're trying to, I mean, it's still, there's a little, lot of sadness still lingering. Um, you know, her funeral's coming up. Um, we haven't, we don't know if Cody's going to be able to make it um, out there and everything's just real bananas right now with, you know, everything. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but the most important part is he got to say his goodbyes and, um, I'm glad that we we took last week off. Me too. Well, that was an oddly inspirational detour. <laughs> it's, it's taken me back to the death duelist from the very early days of the podcast. Yeah. So, but it's good to be back and I'm very excited to get this show on the road and I'm going to try not to, have, to back. have a baby while we do this cuz Okay, yeah, about that. <laughs> Can we address that? Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's just Braxton, Braxton Hicks, but they fucking hurt really bad. Mm. And it feels like back labor, which I've never had with Braxton Hicks before. So this could just hmm. be a new set of torture for me. I feel like your cavalier attitude about it is going to make it be a baby. <laughs> You know, I I feel like if you were like, oh, my God, this is probably a baby. It's happening. Oh, no, it wouldn't be. There's no way. But I feel like the fact that you're like, I don't know. I don't have time for this either. Yeah, there's no it, it that you jinxed yourself. We got a podcast to do. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, my last one, I was going to hitchhike to the hospital. So I'm definitely in, you know, better position. I mean, if it comes, it comes. Right. Yeah, man. Five deep. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by this. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by moms of lots and their yeah. How how calm you eventually end up. It's so weird. We were eating dinner and like I felt 
I mean, it felt like a real contraction and I just like had to hold on to the back of the couch for a minute. And I was just like, whoa. And Ava's like, are you okay? What's going on? Is the baby here? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Is it here? <laughs> it's not here. Not coming Cody, here. <laughs> Cody's trying to explain to her what a Braxton Hicks is. And she was like, well, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, honey, it is very terrible. Okay. Well, John Mellencamp, please try to stay in for a little while longer. We're not, we're not quite caught up on what we need to be caught up on. Yeah. So I had it podcast wise. It's funny and not even a segue, but to distract them, I was like, "Hey, you know, who do you think is going to win the bracket today?" Because I got, I thought it was the Selkie today, which is Ava's favorite. Oh yeah. So then I had to look it up, and uh, so they have bets. It's we're a family di- divided right now on this oh, animal. Interesting, interesting. My my family got weirdly involved in this one too. We I don't think we've discussed it any other one, but my husband had an opinion. Adelaide had a lot of questions. Well, Ava didn't know because this week it's the chupacabra versus the rougarou, and she's like, "What's the chupacabra?" And I was like, "Oh, well, I'll just Google image it," and which I haven't really done. I'm like, "Oh shit!" Like. I don't know if these are very friendly for her before bedtime. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and, they're pretty creepy looking. And Cody's just screaming at them like, it's just a hairless dog. It's just a hairless okay. dog. Okay, Cody, you, yeah, he's one step ahead of me. <laughs> that's my hot take on the, uh, which one is that called? The Chupacabra? Yeah, that's my hot take on the Chupacabra. Should we just jump we're, right we're in? Just gonna, yeah, we're just going to get into this because now I have things to say. It is clearly just a sholo that got loose and is freaking people out i mean it it looks even structurally it looks just like the hairless dog breed sholos hmm it no i'm no no (laughs) no (laughs) why do you reject it but you would i mean you wouldn't have rejected a panda how do you know you don't know if i would reject a panda (laughs) i am an unpredictable rogue agent (laughs) Who knows what I will say? Very well may have rejected a panda. I don't know. I mean, I did kind of like it at first because, I don't know, it's it's different than anything we've ever seen in this bracket so far. I'm really sick of lake snakes and yeti adjacent creatures. And, you know, that's, that's something novel. It likes to drink goats. It has its own drink. Does it? Yeah, it has its own cocktail. I mean, I think... I think fuzzy navels have their own cocktail. That doesn't mean belly button lint's a good thing. <laughs> no, that's that's not a compelling enough reason. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. No. Okay. So, on to the is it, is it said is it called Rougarou? Yes. Okay. So while I was cooking dinner, I made the audio guy read me some stuff about this creature. And I swear to you, he spent a solid literal five minutes just reading about word pronunciations and French word origins and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, this creature is doomed before it's even begun because I am so sick of listening to this. If you don't tell me about its (laughs) beasthood, I don't want... it's over i'm just i'm throwing it out the window just because this is getting ridiculous so he did finally tell me about its beasthood and it's kind of a cool creature right it is it's like a werewolf kind of not exactly but similar it has um a history in 
New Orleans legends and stuff, which is cool. It, oh, what was the other thing? Oh, it, I guess there's only special ways you can make it, which this is some serious world building and backstory. Like most of these creatures were like, I don't know. It lives in the woods. There's no plot holes with the Rougarou. No, they're like, and a witch can make it, but only if this happens. And if you fuck up your Lent resolution, seven Lents in a row, you turn into a Rougarou. And like all the stuff. I mean, there's... There's even ways to stop the Rougarou. Yes. It's insane. The world building is ridiculous. I love the Rougarou. So I like the Catholic connotations as a complicated Catholic myself. I like the New Orleans connotations because I love New Orleans. I like the witch connotations. I love that there is such an intricate plot surrounding this creature. I'm very impressed by that. And for that reason, it wins this round easily. Yes. I'm so happy. I really wanted the <laughs> to win. It's like one of my okay, favorites. W- which of your Ding Dong family members didn't want it to win? Um, Sissy. Aria. Aria and Abby, but they're little and they scare easy. Yeah. And um I actually took a video, so I'll have to send it to you later, of Josie being like, Mommy Rougarou wins. And it's really oh. cute hearing a three year old say Rougarou. Um <gasps> But yeah, I don't know. They have um Ava's was freaked out about by the Rougarou for a while. Um she loves the Rougarou now. So I am thinking they have a Rougarou festival in Homa where we lived prior to moving here, um, about 30 minutes away. But they have a big Rougarou fest every year. And hopefully. What? Really? Yes. Oh, my God. So I really want to go if things Maybe are that calm. that can be where we Because it's in October. So I think. That's adorable. Yeah. I'm like, I don't, but then I'm like, do I want to take my kids to the Rougarou Fest? I mean, start them young, right? Because I mean, yeah, no, you do. People you, are you, like, you absolutely full do. on dress, super scary, and holy shit. Okay, that first of all, that needs to be actually where we meet. Second of all, I think that it's a good pick because if it makes it all the way to the end and someone gets a Rougarou in their cryptid bracket winter basket. There's, like, care instructions. We know exactly how to make it stop. We know exactly how it got here. We know, I mean, I'm sure we could find what to feed it. You know, it's going to be very easy to care for your river. I cannot wait to, to see who wins this thing. Dude, I should have, like, put on some glasses and a mustache and entered this contest myself. Because your basket is freaking lit. I got another item today. I know. I know. I like secretly cool. just want to keep all of this shit for myself. <laughs> and it's not like bubblegum machine stuff. Like I am getting some really badass stuff for this best. No, yeah, no, seriously you are. I mean, listen, nobody can stop us from being like uh Jane Doe won this competition. She sent us to her bracket privately and just keeping it. <laughs> It is our fucking podcast. No one would know. That's I guess now now they would. (laughs) She's so mean, (laughs) y'all. Don't worry. She's Jane Jane Doe got everyone correct. This is why she's not in charge. (laughs) Well, of the bracket at least. (laughs) Because I have no moral compass. 
no, it's good stuff. Okay, well, I'm I'm glad we're laughing and cutting up now because it's over. Oh shit. Okay, yeah, I've got a horrible. I've got horrible stuff. Yeah, because you, in our mom group, mm. y'all, okay. Brand, we're in the same mom group, and she's like going in the mom group, like, hey, can somebody please help me look at this? I'm so okay, scared, listen. and I'm like, hello. If I, if I <laughs> you can hand you, you are in charge of yourself, Melanie. If I didn't care about your spoiling spoiler stuff i would have just asked you directly wouldn't i I know so then i had to get on there i was like hey i'm here can we like i knew you were there that was why i nested it there is and i will warn you right now there is something super super gory in this like whatever is the goriest thing you can imagine it's that and then maybe a little bit maybe this will put me in labor no heck here we go Yeah, so if you, like, fully can't handle that, I get that. And this is one where I will give you a heads up in the episode, not just in the content warnings. So it won't sneak up on you, but there was a YouTube video about it, which included a very graphic photo. And this isn't my first day on the internet, so I clicked the video and then I went to the comments before I watched the video (laughs) so I could see. And... uh, Did you look? (laughs) There Oh, yeah, I looked. And there was a lot of, I was eating this and that before. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. This is not for me. So and you know, I mean, if anyone has been listening from the beginning, I usually if it involves decapitation, I have the audio guy do a lot of googling for me. So I don't accidentally see something I can't handle seeing. Well, the audio guy was at work. And it was like a 10 minute video, maybe. But I texted him at work and I was like, do you have a minute? And he's like, for what? And I was like, can you can you watch this this video real quick and like describe it to me? And he's like, you're going to have to give me a timestamp. And I was like, if I could give you a timestamp, I, I would I would have seen it. I don't know. That's the point. It's, it's somewhere in there. Um, so the audio guy was unfortunately not available. So I had to turn to her mom group. And now I have a little um, gore scouting group chat with like four or five moms who can handle anything. Um, one of them. Thank you, Chelsea. Uh, watched it and described it in excruciating detail for me and I did watch it and we'll get to that at the end oh (laughs) yeah I will take one for the team and describe it in case anyone wants to know what the picture looks like but doesn't want to see it and yeah you know speaking of mortality and speaking of dead people I've been thinking a lot about morbid podcast like ethics recently Mm -hmm. Because I used to always kind of, this is this is a rabbit hole, I've just been thinking about it lately. <laughs> I used to always kind of write my scripts with the thought of the, you know, is this something I would be okay handling it this way and framing it this way and saying it this way if the victim's family listened? Because you never know right. when they're going to. Right. <laughs> and also, I just don't want to be a dick. I mean, mainly I don't want to be a dick, but... I mean, they're out there. They could listen anytime. I'm sure somebody has a Google Google alerts turned on for their loved one's name. So I used to think about that. And, you know, I always just, I don't know. And I've realized that for me, the thing that feels more right is that lately when I record and there are deaths in the episode, I like to imagine that the deceased, like their ghost, is here next to my mic 
having a beer while I record. Because I feel sometimes I'm like, how would I feel about this if it was my spouse or my child? Would I, how would I be okay with this? And would I be okay with it? Yes. Would I listen to it? No, I don't think I could. Right. But how would I feel if it was me and I was the one who was dead? That I think is a, a better litmus test for me. Yeah. Cause normally I'd be like, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, I wouldn't want it to be crass or disrespectful or, you know. Well, if it's about me, you can be crass and disrespectful. <laughs> I'm always crass and disrespectful about you, Melody. I'm a lot looser <laughs> with it if it's old timey. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh, you know, if they've got like a thousand great, 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 great grandchildren, like, I'm going to be a little more graphic with it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, you know, I always kind of apply the what if it was my spouse or child test. And then I get kind of stuck because I know that in reality, I couldn't listen to that podcast. I wouldn't be upset about someone doing it, but I couldn't listen to it. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a wonky test for me. But now the more I do this, the more I like to imagine that the deceased are here with me. While I record, having a beer, saying, holy shit, what a way to go out. I like it. Yep. So we got a lot of people here recording with us tonight because <laughs> uh, some shit really goes down. Oh, no. So, yeah, it's, it's the full room here. <laughs> uh, so this episode involves some disasters, including, uh, as you kind of know, arguably one of the most heinous ones we've ever covered. But before we can get to that... We need to do a deep dive, and that's a pun that, you know, 10 words from now is going to seem horrible, into a very unusual job called saturation diving. Saturation diving? Do you know anything about that? Do you have any preconceived notions at all? I mean, my brain first went into, like, plumbing, but... No, not even close. Why? Why did your brain go... What? I think, because my brain is broken sometimes, and... It Your wanted it wanted to hear sanitation diving. Oh no! You pretty much did that episode already with the Dave Matthews <laughs> Band. <laughs> no saturation diving. Okay, so describing this kind of puts me in this weird middle zone, where I know that anybody who like really understands science and chemistry is going to be screaming at their phones or whatever they listen to their podcast on. But at the same time, I've spent so much time reading about this and trying to understand it that I'm also worried about whether it will make sense to people who know nothing at all about this like I didn't, you know, two weeks ago. So I'm going to try to walk that line. So bear with me. I'm going to try to break it down in a way that is accurate but comprehensible. So there's a condition called nitrogen narcosis, and it is a problem for scuba divers. Have you ever heard of nitrogen narcosis? No. Okay. It's also called the rapture of the deep, but it's not nearly as delightful and mermaidy as that makes it sound. So about 79% of what we're breathing right now is nitrogen. The rest is pretty much oxygen. There's tiny amounts of a couple of other gases. What you may not know, I didn't know, maybe this is dumb, maybe everyone knows this, I don't know, I sure didn't, is that nitrogen is actually an anesthetic. It's just very weak. Okay, wait, I think I have heard of something like this. Okay, keep going, keep going. Okay, so nitrogen is a very weak anesthetic. 
it's not the same gas, but it is similar to nitrous oxide, the stuff you get at the dentist. So when you breathe room air, obviously there's no effect. But if you breathe a lot of nitrogen, you'd be drunk on it. So when you learn how to scuba dive, like when you're first training, you're usually going down about 30 to 60 feet. And most marine life isn't actually that deep. So most of what you would want to see isn't actually all that deep. Deeper than 60 feet is considered a deep dive. And 100 feet is where you can run into nitrogen narcosis. At that depth, the pressure around you causes nitrogen to diffuse into your tissue at a higher rate than normal. And you can start to feel kind of off. First, you feel like your anxiety is fading away. You've got this. You start to gain confidence. You realize you've gotten really good at deep diving. You've gotten the hang of this. There's nothing to worry about. And it's beautiful. The colors are so saturated and you feel so at ease in the water. But gradually you find that your judgment is not good. You can't break your focus from one particular thing or one particular area. And it may not be the thing or the area you need to be focusing on to stay alive. Multitasking gets harder. You get lightheaded. You feel like your brain is moving slow. Your coordination gets altered and you find yourself fumbling and struggling to move yourself through the water. Vertigo sets in. You don't know which way is up. Then you get some ideas. Maybe you feel really sluggish. Maybe you should take a nap right down there in the ocean. Oh, no. Maybe you feel panicked, like you should just rip off your equipment. Maybe you need to get out of there and just ascend to the surface at warp speed, which I think most of us know is not a good plan. You have nitrogen narcosis. If you have the training or a dive partner who isn't in the same state, because your tolerance to it does vary very much like alcohol tolerance. So two people could be at the same depth and not feel the same way. So if you have the training or if you have a dive partner who isn't also experiencing nitrogen narcosis, hopefully you can hold in your mind what you need to do. You need to stay calm, focus, get to a shallower depth slowly so you don't get the bends. But if you don't, you may fall into a coma and die where you are. Or you may even panic and remove your equipment and die. So that's a problem. Nitrogen narcosis. But nobody has to scuba dive. But do you know what does, at least at the moment, have to happen? What? Someone. You sound so scared. <laughs> I am scared. Are you having a baby or are you scared of nitrogen narcosis? No, because it reminds me of something else that Cody taught me a long time ago. So now I'm like oh, no. on the edge of my seat right now. What is it? Tell me. Um... It's called uh, altitude-induced decompression sickness. Oh, I think that's very similar to some things. Yeah, it's like the flying version of the scuba diving version. Yeah, interesting. I want to learn more about that. Okay, so I'm like glued to you. Like, I'm all, all ears. Okay, so nobody has to scuba dive. But what does have to happen is that someone has to build, maintain, and demolish deep water oil rigs which drill up to 10,000 feet below the surface. Mm-hmm. 100 feet is where you get the rapture of the deep. They don't need to go all the way to the bottom, but machines, they just don't cut it. They need humans down there, and it requires you to spend hours in water way deeper than 100 feet, maybe 500 feet, maybe even over 1,000 feet. Enter saturation diving. I'm not going to try to give you a full scientific explanation on this because I, I, dude, I 
researched this harder than I have ever studied for an exam in my college <laughs> history. I okay, and we watched a movie about it also, which we'll get to later. The audio guy and I watched a documentary about this and like I had I, I I'm so obnoxious about this now. I had to pause it every 10 seconds and I was like, okay, so I don't know if they're gonna explain, but let me tell you, this is how this works. This is exactly what's gonna happen. And then I'd play it and they'd say that next. I I've this is the no pun intended deepest I've ever researched an episode. It's it's ridiculous. So I'm not I'm still not going to try to like really get into this because even after all that I don't 100% understand it. It's so fascinating. It's, very, it's it's so complicated. But basically this process was developed in the 1950s and divers spend weeks living inside of a highly pressurized environment moving between a ship and hundreds of feet beneath the surface in a tiny container called a bell that stays pressurized no matter where they are. So I feel like as a podcast listener, this explanation is something that might have my eyes glazing over. So if your eyes just glazed over in that last thing, picture this. Picture a ship off a shore and it's got a long, 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 long cord going all the way down, so far down. And at the bottom of it is a little bell-shaped thing that is, oh... I'm not sure the actual dimensions, but it's small. I mean, it's it's big enough for a team of, you know, under a dozen people to survive in extremely close quarters. I don't so like I don't any of this. No, it's quite small. So the thing is that there's a team on the ship and they operate a wall of controls. looks like an airplane cockpit and they keep things regulated inside the bell. So here's the thing about saturation diving and why it works. After a certain point, your body reaches equilibrium with this insane amount of pressure and your tissues become completely saturated all the way. And then the effect on your body, it doesn't keep getting worse and worse. It levels out. So they only have to go through the grueling process of reacclimating to avoid the bends one time, making it much more efficient than going through all the pressure changes over and over again. So theoretically, it used to be that you would you would go down as far as you could and then you would have to just spend an eternity you know you'd go down for like six hours or something and then you'd have to spend a freaking eternity coming back up it's very inefficient every time you have to decompress like that it's risky right dangerous for your body it's horrible terribly painful terribly time consuming there's always a risk of something going wrong but they figured out that basically once you're down and you're saturated i mean you could stay down there and the coming up process is going to be the same, whether you were down there for five minutes or five months. And that's why they get paid lots of money. Yes, they do get paid lots of money, although I don't feel like they get paid as much money as you might think. But yes, lots. Um, so they spend all this time in this little bitty bell. But the weird thing about it is that the bell may or may not be on the ocean floor. Because the bell is pressurized to match the ocean floor. So when they take them down there, they can swim out and, you know, they're already all sorted out and everything. But they don't have to stay down there because they get back in the bell. It's still pressurized. They can just plop the bell up on the ship and they stay pressurized because they're inside the bell. Oh, so the bell can come back yes. up. Yes. 
Yes. So that's that's a weird thing about saturation diving that is kind of hard to wrap your head around, at least to me it is. And some of these some of these happen down low and some of them don't. By the way, this is a compilation episode. I don't know if I've made that clear. So that's like when you cook a steak, you don't cut right into it. You like just let it sit there for a while. That's dark, but sure. So an aside on the bends, it's not the most critical diving related illness that we're going to talk about in this episode, but the people in it are doing a whole hell of a lot to avoid the bends since this is all, you know, kind of you're avoiding nitrogen narcosis and the bends and the bends will come up a ton in my next episode. So I'm going to explain that briefly now in case you don't know. I feel like that's something that most of us have a general concept of, but when you're way down deep, all that nitrogen that we talked about earlier is inside your body in various places. And when you ascend, even from relatively shallow depths, it all comes out in bubbles in your body. Mm-hmm. Every description I read described it as like when you shake up a can of soda. It is excruciatingly painful. It's very often fatal. You do not want the bends. Bends are bad. Sim- Yeah, bends are bad. Symptoms include extreme joint pain, the sensation of bugs crawling on your skin, which how fucking scary would that be when you're scuba diving? Oh my gosh. So you know how Tag um, is always giving me shit about like the palmetto bugs here? Mm -hmm. Um, I went out to water my garden the other night um, after I fed the rabbit and Stark and stuff. And I walked through something I don't know. I still don't know what I walked through. But I came mm. in and it was about 30 bugs. Because oh, it was no. dark outside, but it's bright inside. So um, I had about 30 little tiny, I don't even know, maybe they were palmetto babies. Um, mm. But they were all over me. Like my blue dress oh. was brown. Oh my God. And I thought I had gotten them all off. You know, it's like when you walk through like a spider web, you just can't really get rid of it. So like, I was like, okay, kids, let's go upstairs and brush your teeth. It was just like real quick. Like I came in, watered my garden, came in and went upstairs, but I still, I didn't get them all off my back. There was probably like 20 of them. Oh my God. So I went upstairs and then like Cody's like, I can see them from down here. And uh, so like I had to take my dress off and then he brought up the smacker decker for me and I zapped them all. But they were really weird looking. Holy shit. Well, now imagine that, but you're scuba diving. Yeah. So I I know that feeling is all I was saying. All that to say. That is... Yeah. I had that, literal that train in the... bugs crawling on me this week. Hell. That is a train in the background, by the way. I will not be removing it because I believe that trains in the background are atmospheric. I feel it's like our mascot. I know. I don't think the audio guy feels that way. Maybe our listeners don't feel that way. But, that cute train you know. just shows up like every other episode. I, I love it. Okay. So let me tell you a little aside about my city. Um, there's a... Story, legend, probably a fact. Have I told you this before about John Dillinger? No. Okay. Um, Apparently, he came here to, you know, do some bank robbing or whatever back in his heyday. But then he didn't do any bank robbing because he said he knew that if he did, he would get stopped at a train and arrested. Because you cannot drive through town without (laughs) getting stopped at a train. Like, it's not going to happen. I love that. Yeah. So, anyway... 
So you're scuba diving, you've got extreme joint pain, bugs on your skin, mottled skin, pitting edema, confusion, sudden mood and behavior changes, which I want to know more about that. I definitely fell down a Reddit rabbit hole there. Um, Seizures, paralysis, urinary or fecal incontinence, a sensation of something tightening around your abdomen or chest called girdling, headaches, hearing loss, vomiting, which again, you're scuba diving, and of course, death. Mm. Sometimes I can't help but feel that we should leave the ocean alone. Yeah. Yeah. You hate the ocean. I, I mean, I love the ocean in terms of like visiting it. I don't, I don't want to go down there though. I don't, I would never scuba dive. That's like no. not something that's no. ever been on my mm-hmm. list to do. And I've been to Australia and that's like. Yeah. You seem like a scuba divey kind of person. No, I don't, I, I don't even think I could do like snorkeling to be honest with you Mm-mm, no i try there, i think i try everything once but not that not that i i don't really i can't really find the words to describe how claustrophobic i am <laughs> and yeah no no I, I love no. the ocean i'll i'll go out and be yeah, in the ocean I mean, all day long yeah, all night but long. i like to be able to just walk out of the ocean at will yes Yes. So not saturation divers. They spend weeks on these jobs breathing a special mix of air that involves a lot of helium to replace some of the nitrogen that would give them nitrogen narcosis. And the nitrogen gives them full time helium voice. (laughs) Apparently it's it's briefly funny every time and then no more. And I guess it would probably be funnier if it weren't for the life or death stakes resting on communication and understandability. Like, obviously, you need to be able to communicate. Right. And it can be hard to understand you. They make something, a descrambler that I guess is supposed to revert your voice to normal, but people don't like them, don't find them reliable. So. Learning some shit tonight. The gas situation is ridiculously complex you don't even know the nitrogen has to be toned way down to avoid nitrogen narcosis but breathing helium and oxygen too deep specifically below 500 feet can cause a nervous system disorder that causes tremors so if they're at that depth then they have to add some nitrogen back into the mix specifically so the narcotic effect will tone down the tremors oh my gosh like, holy shit. It's it's so delicate. It's so precise. It's terrifying. Not surprisingly, I mean, hopefully not surprisingly, the process to become a saturation diver is very intense. But the perks are decent. The work is physically brutal. Divers have to be not only extremely experienced commercial divers, but they also have to have peers willing to vouch for their ability to handle the experience mentally, as well as their professionalism, which is an interesting way of putting it that I came across somewhere, but that really is important in that situation. Yeah, you can't be like fucking off and stuff. No, no. I mean, when you have to get along with other people, when you are all stressed in pain and extraordinarily tight quarters yeah you you need to be a professional the pay is high although okay how high do you think it would be per year i'd say it'd have to be over a hundred 
Well, yeah. But everything that I read is like, it's the highest paying job that exists. It's, there's no higher paying job. I don't believe that. Well, I mean, if you could work straight through, like if you just worked five days a week, it might well be. But there are very strict regulations about how long it can be before you go back down once you've been down. So, I mean, you do get a lot of time not working and you still get to make... 180 a year which and that's good that's good so are they on hitches then where what are hitches basically where it's like where you do like two weeks on two weeks off yes yes okay yes we'll get to that there are only about 300 or so saturation divers employed in the u.s there are only two or three programs in the entire world that can even certify them and the pressure in their holding cell is around 20 times higher than normal air so their bodies stay adjusted to the pressure of the deep ocean. They get their meals through a hatch, whether their container is on land or underwater. They work in shifts or they bunk in a tiny room with tiny, tiny beds. I know flushing the toilet into the waste chamber is a multi-step high stakes process that takes the cooperation of at least two people, both inside and outside the bell. I, I- appreciate this knowledge because yes you love to know about poop i think the implication is that if the flushing went wrong your guts would get sucked out of your butthole because they no, yeah like nobody would really say exactly what it was but they were like we yeah it might be an urban legend but we don't want to talk like a party till you prolapse (laughs) type deal is that a saying that's what i used to say what in what context? You know, drink a lot, and then you have, like, your late night Taco Bell or White Castle. No, Melanie. No. You know, that's not a thing. Party till you prolapse. No one has ever said that before but you. <laughs> no one. If someone somewhere is familiar with that being a thing, please write to us. And don't just be an alt account if that's really Melanie. Hey. <laughs> what the fuck? Why are you like this? I don't know. I don't fucking I love know. You. I love you. <laughs> but how did you get married? I don't know either. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, it must be all the other things you bring to the table. It must be. I don't know if it's including or in spite of party till you prolapse. But I yes, feel you do so- want to party and not prolapse. I feel sorry for him because, listen, we are complete opposites. He is such a gentleman. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We are eating dinner tonight, and he doesn't do dessert or sweets or anything like that normally. And uh, the kids just think it's, like, the weirdest fucking thing in the world. Um. And we don't do dessert every night, but every once in a while, I'll be like, yeah, let's let's have some fun. So I gave him pudding tonight, and Cody was helping one of the kids take the um, the aluminum foil off the top. He licked it, and I was like, I, that was like something I would have never pictured him doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's like, why are you smiling like that? And I was like, because it was just looked like pure enjoyment. I was like, you don't like sweets, but... I just saw you like lick the foil wrapper off our kid's pudding and then he wound up having it. And that was, I don't know why I just went on that little tangent, but 
Well, I think to draw the the parallel, or maybe the opposite, the distance between party till you prolapse and your husband. Being just a sweet, mindful, not gross person. My God. (laughs) Well, if he's not gross, he shouldn't listen to this episode. No. So, half the team sleeps and recovers while the other half is diving for the entire workday. And they are attached to the vessel by long cords called umbilicals that look strikingly like actual umbilical cords. With one serving as a lookout and potential rescuer if the team outside the bell runs into trouble. And the umbilical thing will come up again and again and again and again. So, I have a good mental image of that. The tiniest equipment malfunction can mean immediate death. Visibility is usually horrible from the silt. The materials being carried around are extremely heavy, even underwater. Every joint in their bodies aches and it clicks from the compression. When they move, their joints click. Ooh, no. Mm-hmm. The job is so closely associated with avascular necrosis where your bone tissue uh, dies that it isn't even known if it affects all or only most of saturation divers. Like, that's how common it is. I don't like that. The fatality rate from on-the-job accidents is super high. Desaturation is a process, and the tiniest infection, like even a cold, could do enough damage in that pressurized environment to end a diver's career, if not their life. It's a big deal. They enter a decompression chamber that is clamped tight to form a tight seal with the bell. From the time they're sealed into their chamber to the time they leave it is 28 days. They call it seal to seal. So it takes a day to reach the bottom and adjust to the conditions, And then decompression takes one day for every 100 feet they go down, plus one day on top of however many. So an 800-foot dive would take one day down and nine days up. So they'd work for 18 straight because it is 28 days pretty much no matter what. So when you come back up, you are exhausted. I, I read about one guy who goes to live in the woods for a while before he goes home to his family. Because you just kind of get a little bit feral. They're like the OG quarantine kids. Yeah, yeah. So you you can't work again for a month or two. A month is actually legally required to recover when you come back up. But I think it's often a bit longer than that. So for whatever reason, the late 70s and early 80s were absolutely the fuck not the time to be a saturation diver. I do not know what was going on in that time. Saturation diving has gone on from the 60s to now, but the Wikipedia page for saturation diving lists seven notable accidents, and each and every one was between 74 and 83. Oh, no. Yeah. And I don't know, because I uh, there's at least one other outside of those. I don't know if whoever edited that Wikipedia page was weird. It was the most kind of comprehensive source I really found listing different saturation diving incidents i I don't know but this incredible run of horrible luck started with a drill master diving accident which was in norway in 1974 every bell has a drop weight this one's short every bell has a drop weight which is more or less the anchor that keeps it down which knowing what you know about the bends and the time needed to return to the surface even at a really shallow, like just scuba diving depth, is real damn important. The drill master, and you may be thinking, but I thought they could just come up any time because they stay in the pressurized chamber. Hold on to your ass. 
The drill master was 320 feet down with two divers working in the water, attached by their umbilicals, when the drop weight was accidentally released, <gasps> and the bell flew upwards, dragging the men behind it. No! Yep. They were killed by the bends. Fuck! Yeah, imagine. Imagine being them and just goodbye. And you know, like, you would have a moment of awareness. Yeah! You would know exactly what was coming. Oh, so, man. Yeah. And I remember I told you, well, I think that was before we were recording. It gets worse and worse. Okay. But yeah, no, there, this is a progression from bad to, oh my God. And we're starting light with bad. <laughs> so a year and a half later, a crew was off the Scotland coast. They had two divers, both in their 20s, named Peter and Roger, which were such incredibly 70s names. Mm-hmm. They were at nearly 400 feet trying to get some rope off of something called a blowout preventer or a BOP. And Wikipedia is very specific about the fact that it is not called a bop. <laughs> Which is kind of a stick in the mud thing to say, in my opinion. They they really stress that it is not pronounced Bob. So this wasn't a long dive. And after clearing the rope, they were ready to begin the decompression process, which we know. Oh, there's the train. Which we know because they were at about 400 feet would take five days. So their bell was pulled from the ocean and it was connected to the things on the ship to begin the depressurization. This particular story involves a very complicated situation with some gauges. So I'm just going to break it down as much as possible. There were pressure gauges in multiple chambers. It was normal practice to have redundant systems as kind of a checks and balances thing, but they also couldn't really risk having two different gauges that weren't set the same way, giving misleading or conflicting readings. Right. So there was one in chamber one that was apparently the most accurate, and that was kind of the final authority on what was what. Each gauge could also measure the pressure in its own chamber, but it could also be used to measure the pressure in most other chambers if you just did some stuff to it. So when Peter and Roger were in the ship's area for depressurization, they were supposed to, because remember, they've already been pulled up. They were supposed to connect the bell to the complex, which is like a somewhat larger area that they live in when they're aboard the ship during depressurization. Uh So they were supposed to seal the bell to the complex, equalize everything, get out of the bell, and then reset the gauges to monitor them while the pressure slowly dropped over several days. And there's a supervisor in charge of all of it. There's always a supervisor. So they hooked up the bell and they tried to get a seal, but it didn't work properly. There was a gas leak messing up the seal. Oh. They clean. Yeah. They clean the surfaces that they were trying to get to seal to each other. And this time it worked. It's the end of the story. Mm. It's a terrible podcast, right? Mm Mm-mm. No. That's not what happened. They, nope, nope, nope. They were able to attach and equalize with the complex, and then they opened their door and they started to exit. And that is when things went sideways. The pressure gauge suddenly started dropping. The gas leak was back. They tried to reseal the exit, but they couldn't do it. And the guy in charge of supervising them had a Hail Mary idea. Peter and Roger needed to get inside of chamber one while the crew could work to fix the gas leak and get them out safely. So they hauled ass inside, holding the door shut with their bodies while their supervisor sealed it. 
Inside, they immediately realized that something was horrifically wrong. The room was getting unbelievably hot and humid really fast. It, when they went in, it was already around 90 degrees in there, but it very quickly hit 120. <gasps> they understood the gravity of the gas leak, obviously, but this was also pretty freaking urgent. So they start frantically pulling at the hatch, but it would not open. They were desperate to cool off, so they removed the mattresses from their bunks and they laid on the aluminum bottoms that were, I guess, a little bit cooler. And it might have bought them a little time. But it wasn't enough. They died within hours. What had gone wrong was twofold. Wait, within hours? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's slow. Yeah. Yeah. And they died of hyperthermia. <gasps> yeah. They kind of cooked. So the supervisors, it was twofold. The supervisor's errors and a system that made errors like them so easy to happen what had happened was when he sealed the men into chamber one, he didn't switch the most accurate gauge to monitor that chamber. Instead, that gauge continued to show a catastrophic gas leak. So to offset it, he was pouring helium into chamber one as fast as he could to stop the men from getting the bends. But chamber one was fine. Or at least it was until he did that. It started oh. out fine. The gauge was reading the room they already knew had a leak. But the helium he was delivering to try to save them had dramatically pressurized them in just minutes. And helium has a very high thermal transfer property, making the otherwise safe chamber fatally overheated. Oh, no. Yep. All right. We're descending into worse stuff. So they were just, like, cooked. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's really not any information about any of these people like ever because it's all for pretty much from the 70s and 80s so i couldn't find much a lot of it is not american newspapers so it was harder to find translations yeah i i really don't have any information unfortunately about any of these guys um so two years later a crew was working on the venture one off the scotland coast and they were about five feet under they were also trying to lower a not a bop. The supervisor, <laughs> never calling it anything but that. The supervisor, Richard, was supposed to check the base and make sure that everything was clear and ready for the not a bop. And at 4 a.m., Richard sent the bell down with two divers inside named Dave and Craig. Craig was only 22. Richard stopped them at just under 500 feet and Dave and Craig peeped out at the portholes at the base. They didn't find what they had hoped and expected to find, which was an area clear and ready for installation. Instead, they found wires all over the place blocking the area that they needed. So Craig swam out with a hacksaw and started working on clearing the wires while Richard continued to oversee from the ship. But he didn't like the sound of Craig's feedback. Remember, Craig's only 22. Right. He was breathing too fast. So Richard, and remember, Richard is not his other diver richard is like the dive supervisor so richard told craig to stop and rest repeatedly and craig did he was wearing a hot suit which is kind of a neat contraption it's like a diving suit that circulates hot air through the umbilical not hot air hot water through the umbilical to keep the diver warm oh that is cool 
Yeah. So it circulates all over your scuba suit and keeps you from, because I mean, it's freezing down there. Right. So after Craig had finished two wires, Richard ordered him back to the bell so he could rest while Dave finished the third. Craig re-entered the bell, stripped off his hot suit. Dave put that same hot suit on. Dave went out to the wires. They were sharing a hot suit? Yeah. I don't know if that's standard or if it is. I don't know. I, I have no knowledge on whether that's normal. Um, it doesn't seem to be part of the story. So Dave went out to the wires and he picked up where Craig had left off and he was talking to Craig through the headset about just mundane details of the task. Everything was fine. Craig asked Dave to double check what he had done with the wires when he was out there, which he did. Richard, the dive supervisor, continued listening in and he was satisfied that Craig was doing okay now. He seemed alert and oriented. His breathing had returned to normal. And then suddenly, Richard heard, quote, a strange high-pitched electrical noise that had no business sounding in the bell. That is not what you want to hear. No, no. Something had been off this whole time. He had known this. He told Dave to go back to the bell immediately, but Dave said he was just like a hair away from being done with the third wire. But Richard must have really felt a sense of urgency because he told Dave, it doesn't matter. Drop your shit. Get back to the bell now. Dave didn't waste time. He didn't even take his tools back with him. He just booked it back to the bell and he found Craig, quote, floating in a dead man's position in the passageway into the bell. He had to get Craig back into it, but they were like the same size and Craig was in heavy gear and dead weight. So Dave couldn't get him fully into the bell. So he climbed in himself and pulled Craig as far into it as he could and started mouth to mouth resuscitation. So while he was doing it, he lost communication with the ship and all he could really do was just continue this for more than 20 minutes. He finally stopped, checked for any sign of life, but Craig's pupils were fixed and unresponsive and Dave knew he was dead. Richard wanted Dave to get the body fully inside, but the weight and the tight confines were just too much and Dave told him he couldn't do it and Craig was dead. All he could do was tie the body to the outside of the bell to be brought up with it. Bell would stay pressurized even on land. He would just have to spend six days decompressing, but he had to make the climb. I'm really not sure how long it takes to ascend in the bell, but he had to make the climb to the surface completely alone in this unbearably claustrophobic space, knowing that his crewmate's corpse was strapped just outside the window. I couldn't. As the, I couldn't fucking no, do it. No. As the bell slowly rose up. There is nothing on what that climb was like for him. But I did read that when he reached the surface, he was described as very cold, very tired, and very stressed. And the decision was made to place another diver in with him for the days long decompression. No one was ever to really monitor to him. I think just to keep him company. Honestly, I th- I think it was just like mental health reasons, which is shocking I, for that that time. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if maybe they had reason to be concerned about whether he might do something. Right. I don't know, but they put somebody in there with him, and no one was ever really able to make sense of why Craig was in the trunking. Nothing was wrong with the equipment and his autopsy showed that his he'd been in perfect health before he drowned 
All they could speculate was that he had stood up too quickly while he squeezed his nose to unclog his ears because they have to do that absolutely constantly down there. Mm -hmm. So they figured he must have stood up and done that at the same time and fainted from his blood pressure dropping too abruptly and just fell into the trunking with no mask where he drowned. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. We're we're getting... Drowning freaks me out. All right, we'll get ready because there's more. So, 1978, a year later, also off Scotland, over 300 feet down. The weather was bad and they were working behind because they had had decreased oil production that year. And there were 40 knot gusts on land, which you may not think would affect the ocean floor. But because of the support lines running from the bell to the ship, because there's, there's umbilicals that run from the bell to the divers, but then there's one that runs all the way up to the ship. Things, because of those support lines, things blowing around were a problem. (laughs) And the ship that supported the bell blew away from its designated spot, which was a threat to the cords running between them. So the captain aboard mission ordered operations to stop, but then the weather got a little bit better and they decided they were going to go ahead. So the bell was dropped from the... I don't really know how you pronounce this. Canopus? Canopus? I don't know. And it had a Norwegian semi-submersible right next to it, which is huge. So two divers named Tony and Michael went down with it. They got right to work once they got down, but they were called back almost immediately when the captain saw an incoming squall, which I've always felt was a word that we should use more often. Yes. I want more More opportunities to say squall. I mean, I guess I don't, and I... I really won't by the end of this one, but I want to say it more. So they were stuck in the bell for nearly an hour waiting for the weather to subside. And then Michael was sent back out. Two hours later, the canopus was slammed by a sudden, unbelievably strong continuous wind, which wrecked the positioning system that they needed to keep the bell where it belonged. Alarms started going off. Lights started lighting up and the divers were again ordered back into the bell. And as Michael went back into the bell's trunking, the ship was slammed into the platform where it's mat, like up above. And the ship's mast was slammed onto the deck. And yeah, at that time, the ship was being blown out of the water and onto the land. Oh. Yeah. The captain fought to manually force the ship to turn and not run aground. But... The ship, as the ship waited for the bell to be sealed with the drivers inside, they instead saw their dive abort light blink on, which is a light you don't want to see, the dive abort light. Ah, that creeps me out. So the captain reiterated that they had to get back in the bell now, but they couldn't. Tony was trying to reel Michael in by his umbilical, but it was stuck on something and they couldn't figure out what The bell couldn't be sealed until the umbilical was pulled loose and the dive needed to be aborted like now. now. Yeah. They tried solution after solution, but nothing worked. Things were getting worse by the second and the captain wanted the dive supervisor to raise the bell immediately. And they ordered the divers to cut the umbilical as fast as they could and get into the bell. Like it's that serious. Cut the umbilical. Oh no. Yeah. So the bell is just dragging around on the seabed, smashing into things. And they finally got inside and sealed so the ship could start raising them to the surface. Things were fraught 
as dive control started raising the bell through the stormy water and they were calling out the meters as they got higher and higher. Finally, they reached 100 feet from the surface. They were so close. But then something went wrong. Tony stood up inside the bell and yelled, I'll stop. Dive control watched him on the monitors. He listened for something. When dive control looked, they saw something they shouldn't have seen. The umbilical running from the bell to the ship wasn't hanging right. And a bunch of other things weren't either. Some parts of the network of cords were shaking. (gasps) And that's when the umbilical and the lift wire were suddenly and completely severed. What? It broke? By the Norwegian semi-submersible's anchor chain. Oh, no! Sending them plunging through 300 feet of water to land on the ocean floor. And they were still pressurized, so, I mean, that's something, but they were removed from all life-saving support, video feed, and perhaps most urgently, temperature control. They had to think fast once they landed because the temperature would become incompatible with life real fast. Right. They needed immediate rescue, but had no communication with the ship, no way of knowing if help was on the way, and no strobes to indicate their location. They knew the cavalry may not be coming. So knowing what you know about how this whole system works at this point, what would you do? Uh, I'd sit and wait. You're still pressurized. I'd just wait. Okay, well. I mean, you would have to wait, right? (laughs) I mean, maybe. It wasn't ideal, but they could release the drop weight. Because they were still pressurized. So, I mean, it's not the best thing, but it's better because they didn't have any strobes. So even if they came down, like they had just landed on the ocean surface, the silt is going to be unreal. If rescue comes down, and they would have to come down very fucking fast. If rescue comes down, there's going to be silt everywhere, and they have no strobe or lights or anything. So they're not even going to be able to see them. No, no. So the best thing at this point, it's still not ideal, but it probably would be to release the drop weight, let the bell float to the surface, not knowing where it may end up or what it may collide with on the way. Which, I mean, if you get to the surface and there's not somebody around, that's a problem because they're still pressurized and they don't have their umbilical. Right. But it was their best bet. Most bells had something called a bell stage. So picture a big metal bell with an enclosed bottom sitting on top of like a smaller bird cage made of PVC. Okay. And that's a pretty good mental image of what the staging is. The stage has a lot of purposes and one is to hold the bell up off of the mud, giving the divers space to exit. Now, I assume this one didn't have one probably because it was meant to stay suspended and that's what would have been kind of keeping it in place and so they wouldn't need to be on the mud but shit happens and now the position was locking tony and michael inside because the exit was on the bottom and they were sitting on the ocean floor yeah they're bogged in basically yeah so the drop weight had to be released from outside the bell is someone gonna have to sacrifice themselves Oh, shit, I hadn't even thought of that. Man, that would be a movie and a half, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, they couldn't get out. There were multiple rescuers on the surface trying to reach them, but the storm continued to rage, and it took 13 long hours before they could make it to the bell. 
And when they did, they found an unfortunate scene. Michael was dead from hypothermia. And yeah, as the bell was lifted from the silt, Tony's body fell from the trunking and free floated to the surface alongside the bell with his dive partner's body inside. The bends were no longer a concern. He had drowned waiting. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. Okay, here we go. We got two more. This one's short. So just one year after that, in 1977, and the reason I'm not going to get into this one at length is because in a lot of ways, it's very similar to the other saturation diving accidents that I've already covered in this episode. And I mean, you can pretty much see like there are a handful of things that can go wrong. Like there's umbilicals going two ways. Either one could get messed up. You know, the, the a lot of it has to do with that. And there are things that can go wrong with the gas and the temperature and the pressure. And it's it's mostly things surrounding that. So this one, I mean, it's a perfectly interesting story. And I don't want to give these guys the short end of the stick, but it is it's almost like a composite of a lot of others. So two divers on the Wild Drake near Scotland were in the middle of an emergency bell recovery after their vessel's umbilical had gotten snagged in some underwater equipment. The rescue mission was very drawn out and tense, with the two men on board, Richard and Skip, progressing from calm and upbeat to, quote, very, very frantic, eventually unsuccessfully attempting to cut the ropes on their own drop weights and eventually writing, I don't even know if I'm going to get out of here alive. Mm. Both men died of hypothermia before their rescue could be completed, and the reason I'm including this brief overview of this particular event is because of a plate. An adorable Norwegian folk art plate. What? Somewhere somewhere in the world, there is some number of plates depicting the disaster in the most twee folksy way imaginable. It's, there's, there's disaster paner, paraphernalia for this? Okay. Okay. There's a sun in the sky and it's smiling. There is a helicopter with some cute like 50s little people style people in it. Um, there are seagulls flying in the sky. There's some really cute twinkly stars. There are schools of whimsical fish. There is a ship, a crane, a couple of wholesome looking rescue divers, and the bell stranded at the bottom of the ocean. And honestly, I have never needed anything more in my life, but I can't find one available anywhere or it would already be mine. Oh my gosh, I want one too and I haven't even seen it. I thoroughly investigated to see if I could find one for you for Christmas. Oh. <laughs> uh, I can only find one that was sold on an auction website for 15 pounds. And uh, yeah, I can't find another, but it's actually adorable. And it, it, it's just, it is. I know it, it's so bizarrely tone deaf, but just in terms of folk art, it is super cute. So, yeah, I'm going to need to find that. When I find that, I can just quit podcasting because I think there we go. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to have your night ruined? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I have saved the absolute fucking worst for last. This was initially supposed to be the entire topic of the episode. Um, it There's not a lot of detail it seems like something that could be an episode but just because it's so heinous but there's actually not really that much to it but it was also so horrifically gory i kept researching other sat diving disasters to avoid this one it all worked out yep so if you have not you melanie you can't go anywhere 
But if the rest of you have a low tolerance for audio descriptions of gore, this is without a doubt the spot where you should take your leave. (laughs) It's been nice. Enjoy your day. Go have a mimosa and don't listen to this. (laughs) This is the Biford Dolphin Diving Bell Accident. It makes me, it makes my stomach drop just saying that name, knowing everything I know. In 1983, a team of four had just been brought aboard the ship that supported their bell. They were Edwin, Roy, Bjorn, and Truls. They had two tenders with them, which is like their helper guys, William and Martin. As in a previous section, the bell was sealed to the trunk which would connect them to the larger complex. Roy and Edwin were resting. They were fully saturated, living in an environment that contained the pressure of nine atmospheres. The two tenders were supposed to maintain a seal using a clamp. Uh, No one will ever know why, but as Trulst moved to close the door to the chamber, William released the clamp that maintained the seal. (gasps) What came next was called an explosive decompression. But this is somehow so much worse than whatever you may envision when you hear the word explosive. Like the whole pink mist thing when you talk about explosions would have been better. Instead, for three of the divers, the blood in their hearts flash boiled. (gasps) Killing them instantly. The fourth diver, Trules, had been about to close the door now picture a circular hatch on a circular door frame right and it was ajar when the accident happened leaving a crescent shaped opening that was maybe 24 inches across at its widest point i've seen it described as picture a manhole with the cover like sitting half on it right but like it's attached like it it's fixed in place it's not moving so The blast of air leaving the chambers sucked Trulls through that space. And his torso must have been about level with the widest part of the crescent because it seems like that's what was pulled first through, bisecting him around the abdomen. (gasps) The entirety of his organs were sucked out and scattered. Why? Leaving only his trachea and a tiny bit of intestine inside his body. He was decapitated. His spinal cord was ripped out and thrown 30 feet. His spinal cord was... All four divers plus one of the tenders were killed. The other was severely injured. A lot of people wonder, like, how the fuck did that guy survive? What was that like? I don't know. I I looked a lot. I couldn't find it. And now, that's, that's pretty much that. And now the titles of the YouTube videos that cover it include The Most Gruesome Death Imaginable, The Bifur Dolphin Accident, Extreme loss of pressure tears you apart. Last moments. And truly disturbing. Seven ways to die. Number two. Warning graphic images with the autopsy photo right there in the thumbnail. Oh my goodness. So thankfully I hadn't scrolled down before I. So I'm super confused why there's like videos on this. Is it just like pictures? Um, The videos. I mean, it's the wild, wild west of YouTube. It's basically just, you know, some 
guy who talks like a Nickelodeon presenter with a British accent presenting seven most disturbing ways to die. And it'll have this in it. And for some reason, the picture of Trulls' body is very accessible. It's everywhere. So don't Google is this. Is it the spine thing? Are prepared. Okay. I'm going to describe the image. And I, I thought about, should I describe the image? I'm going to. And the only reason that I'm ultimately going to is for people like me who may possibly want to look it up, but really don't want to want to know what they're going to see. <laughs> um, not really to be ghoulish, but because I mean, I tried to include every piece of information that I could about in this so people wouldn't have any reason to Google for more information. The only thing that I didn't really get into because I don't really understand it is there was some weird situation with their blood where like all the fat in their body like became non-soluble and ended up in weird places like inside their veins. I don't, I don't know. I don't really understand how that works. So I didn't uh, really get into that. But if you want to look into it more, but you are afraid of seeing the picture, here we go. I will describe the picture to you. So it is a pretty close up of an autopsy table. And it is a bunch of body parts arranged more or less, you know, in, in the way that a human body would be. Um, not much is connected to anything, but it's arranged in the shape of a person. Um the skin is kind of a couple different colors. Sometimes it's it's kind of white and sometimes it's kind of red and mottled. Oh, no. Both of the arms are severed. You can see the hands pretty distinctly. Most of it honestly does not look human. No, it you sure really, doesn't. You're Google, you looked it up? I couldn't help it. God bless it. Yeah, most of it doesn't look human. I think the hands are the only truly recognizable thing that if you just saw that out of context, you would know what it was. Um, one of the moms who is uh, a farm chick uh, said that it basically looks like a really badly butchered hog, which is not yeah. inaccurate. Yeah. yeah. There, There's no head, but if you share my decapitation problem like it's so just like body parts arranged it doesn't really look like a decapitated human but no there isn't a head um you can see both hands that is truly the only human looking thing you can see that he was pulled apart at around you know probably between the groin and the belly button and on one of his hands his watch is intact mm-hmm and yeah his, his fingers and like hands and wrists are pretty intact one leg is just like not there the other leg there's just some stuff down there where a foot would be and then there's a a relatively intact calf and then a pretty mangled thigh which is you know all those are separate from each other then you've got just like this mass of organs and then you've got the chest and uh torso and hands and arms which are all distinct entities yeah um so it's it's relatively high resolution i mean you you definitely can see what there is to see but it, it really doesn't look very human the I only have, thing i no, can put together with what i just saw is he had to have at least gone out very quickly i think it was pretty much instant yeah. for all of them 
Um, I mean, even if he hadn't been ripped to pieces, you know, their blood flash boiled. So was he even alive technically when he got pulled through? I don't know. I've seen some descriptions that said they basically were simultaneously pulled apart and exploded from within, which that tracks. Um, but I, I have, yeah, you can't unsee that. No, no. I have, like, a very low tolerance for gore, but it, it's so gory, it, it almost, like, goes over the line into you can look at it. It looks fake. Yeah. I mean, it, it just looks... It, it could be any animal, really, except for the hands. <laughs> yeah. It could... Yeah. I mean, we're we're all just animals. It could truly be parts of any animal with human hands. <laughs> That one's rough. Yeah. So that's the end. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. I, I mean, where do you go from there? Um. Disaster that's relief? relief? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you got? Um. So let me wash my brain real quick. Um, bleach my eyeballs. So mm-hmm. my disaster relief this week is Sweeter Do. And Sweeter Do took my maternity photos. <gasps> oh, I can't believe we haven't talked about this. I know. Oh my God. I love them so much. And I was thinking a little oh. bit about it today. I'm like, I don't think I've ever broken a law pregnant before. Did you break a law? I mean, technically, yeah, I was trespassing. Oh. Right? Wow. Yeah, so, now your baby's a criminal before it's even out. So if anyone... That's why it's giving you pain right now. <laughs> so if anyone hasn't seen... Yeah, I posted them um, as soon as I got them because I couldn't wait. Um, Sweeter Do specializes in... Um, abandoned photography he does a lot of um just like you'll see a lot of stuff that just was abandoned because of hurricane katrina um i got to experience one of those buildings it was actually a school um i feel like it's safe to say that um because there were quite a few schools that were left abandoned from the hurricane um i don't want to give too many details like where it's at because you don't want a bunch of people bum rushing and, no, you no. know, taking up locations and doing and stuff. But it was bananas. There's uh, the pictures are breathtaking. Uh, the whole experience was really cool. Sweeter Do was super awesome um, and accommodating and, um, you know, which is really good being pregnant. And then you're like in this situation that's not necessarily the safest. Like, hey, don't take those steps. There's a lot of heroin needles. Like, take oh, this yeah. steps. Um, so it, the whole experience was really incredible. Um, there's a shot where I'm like sitting on some filing cabinets. You know which one I'm talking about? Like it, yes. and they're all open. They're all school records. Oh my gosh! And not, I I was surprised to learn not necessarily from Katrina students, just old school records. Old school records, like yeah. old, old, old. Like some of them just still had black and white photos of the students stapled to it, report cards, and it was just, 
it blew my mind that there's a whole room of files just still sitting there. And, yeah. um, you know, I explained, I was like, you know, I'm not originally from Louisiana. Like, it's just normal. And Sweeter Dude was talking about how, like, recently they had shot in a prison. Mm. And it, it was the same thing with Katrina, but it was like you'd go through file after file. Can you imagine going, seeing, no. going through and seeing oh all these gosh. prison files? No. So... I don't know. I'm just blown away. So everybody should definitely I'll link their profile. You should check it out. It's, it's really cool. I I love my maternity photos a lot. Yeah. They, they're stunning. And just for clarification, in case there's um, discussion, like in the group or on the Facebook page, um, does sweeter do use they, them pronouns? Um, I, the whole setting up the shoot was very like, I mean, I guess I could have gotten murdered. It wasn't the safest. (laughs) Um, So they use specific pronouns, but I don't know. I didn't really ask what pronouns I should use um, just for confidentiality. Like, I'm not trying to get anyone in trouble. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I think defaulting to they is appropriate there. I just didn't want anyone getting misgendered if there was discussion in a pronoun that wanted to be used. Right, right. So, um, but yeah, so like, I mean, right down to I'm driving to New Orleans, like, I'm here, and they're like, park behind my car, I'll meet you here, and then we'll walk here. So, I mean, it, it definitely could have gone sideways. I mean, I felt like I did it as safely as I could, but it wound up being perfect and not weird or bizarre. I mean, don't go, you know, booking photo shoots with strangers. (laughs) I'm not saying that like I did. I I totally vetted the person out. My investigative skills are really good. Yes, I can vouch for that. Um, so I knew a lot more going into it than just looking at the pictures. Yeah, I mean, I assume that there's probably a lot you're not saying for confidentiality. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, that's my disaster relief this week. Um, well, that is very good disaster relief because that is, they're incredible. Thank you. What's yours? Um. So mine <laughs> is uh, very much related to my episode. <laughs> There is a documentary on Netflix called Party Till You Prolapse. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It is going to take so much restraint not to make that the title of this episode. Um, No, it's called Last Breath. And I don't want to tell you anything about it because it's something that's better if you watch it cold. All I will tell you is it is not gory if that's something you're concerned about it is a documentary it is on netflix it's about saturation diving it's about an incident that would have fit right in with this episode but i cannot tell it any better than this documentary can so go watch it it's on netflix it's called last breath it is so well done i could not tear my eyes away from it and i can't recommend it enough oh i'm really excited i want to check it out for sure yeah, so if you um, found this episode interesting and want to see it with some visuals and see something that um, would fit right in with maybe not the last one, but all the ones before it, something that is just very similar to those, but in an extremely well-made documentary, 
I know that some of the stuff in the documentary is um, recovered footage and some of it is recreated. And this is how good it is. I don't know which is which. Oh, I love when that happens. I can't tell. I, I really can't tell. And I mean, I'm annoying. So the whole time I was like, what is this? Is this recovered footage? Is this recreated? And like trying to know? I have no idea. <laughs> I have none. So absolutely go watch that. Like, I, I want to make you watch it. I'm definitely. <laughs> I to make everyone watch it. I have some free time tomorrow. I'm going to watch yeah, it. Yeah, I'm having a damn baby. Oh, I still got my little back pains, but. I think I'll be okay. I think I'm going to take a hot bath before bed. Okay. Well, take a hot bath and go to bed. (laughs) Sweet dreams or no baby. Sweet dreams or no dreams. Hey, Horrible Ghouls. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to share your personal MarkSafe moment, you can send it to us at MarkSafePodcast at gmail.com. Please give our podcast a rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your buddies about us too. That goes a long way. If you want to further elevate your support, check out our Mark Safe Patreon page, where we have shoutouts, goodies, and some bonus content in the works. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again, and as always, stay safe.